I think very often as a boss, we feel like we failed if someone is obnoxiously aggressive with us. Like we, we haven't asserted our authority or something like that. And that's not the case. If someone tells you what they really think, even if they don't say it just right, you are succeeding as a leader. You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Monday, and in these episodes, you'll hear Sangram interview incredible practitioners, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs within our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. Welcome to another fun episode of Flip My Funnel podcast. Today, it is incredibly distinct honor for, for me to have Kim Scott. I heard about Kim and, and people who are in the community, you already know that I'm a big fan of Radical Candor. I think it has fundamentally changed the way we run our own company. And I first saw her speak at Silicon Slopes conference. I think this was their first Silicon Slopes conference and, and the organizers gave away this book and I read it on the, the flight back and I was like sending copies of it. Like, hey, let's just buy like, you know, 20 copies of this. Like everybody should read it. And it was just a phenomenal thing. So we are going to get into what does radical candor mean? Google, Apple, working with Sheryl Sandberg, whole bunch of things. So, so Kim, welcome to the show and thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here and thanks for the radical candor enthusiasm and buying all those books. <laughs> it is fantastic. And some people missed the entertaining, the recording before we started recording of us getting situated. So that was <laughs> a lot of fun. So so let's start with a fun fact about you. So fun fact about me, my very first job out of college, I earned $6 a month writing a paper on military conversion, sort of swords into plowshares in what was then the Soviet Union. Wow. $6. I mean, it $6 was- a month. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could live on it. The man who's my boss sent me my very first email. I got, that was the first email I received and it said, $6 a month may not sound like much, but there's nothing to buy here anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Sold. <laughs> yeah, I was like, all right, sign me up. That is fantastic. All right, so, so you wrote this amazing book, and there are hundreds of thousands of books, right, on team and leadership. Before we get into this idea of radical candor, why do you think your book, this idea of radical candor, you know, be a kick-ass kick boss without losing your humanity, why do you think it became such a big kind of vital phenomenon? Well, I think that part of it is that everybody struggles with this. I mean, I, I led a team of 700 people at Google, and it was like watching a slow motion train wreck happening day after day after day, a train wreck that I myself had caused many, many times. So just the reluctance to solicit feedback, to offer both praise and criticism and to create an environment in which everybody is doing the same is one of the biggest problems in business. And I think a lot of management books are written by people who haven't led teams. And so I, I tried to write this book, not like a management book, but more like a, a book of short stories. Because there's so much human drama <laughs> involved in managing people. And I really wanted to try to make that easier because it's, it's devastating sometimes. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. I mean, I sometimes feel as a co-founder, it, it becomes like a lonely place. 
And you know, sometimes I feel like, yes, we want to have all the feedback, but there are certain things you feel like, I don't know if we can share this or is yeah. that a good thing or is it a bad thing? Yeah. How people react, people are at different levels, different life things that are happening. And it's, it's a constant kind of filter that you think about. What's your advice for, for that kind of level of leadership that everybody has pressures, everybody has, and they're constantly going through the filter of what to share, what not to share, what to share, what not to share? I think the most important thing you can do is, first of all, solicit before you worry about what you're sharing. So radical candor, there's a definite order of operations. And step number one is to ask for feedback, to make sure you understand where the other person is coming from, what's going on for the other person. So, so you want to sort of drag it out of people first and foremost. And by the way, especially if you're the boss, even if someone is obnoxiously aggressive with you, like that's a triumph. <laughs> and I think very often as a boss, we feel like we failed if someone is obnoxiously aggressive with us. Like we, we, haven't, we haven't asserted our authority or, or something like that. And that's not the case. If someone tells you what they really think, even if they don't say it just right, you are succeeding as a leader. And I think remembering that is really, really important. And then I think the next thing to focus on is the good stuff. I think we're very reluctant to give voice to what we appreciate about working with other people because it's easier to look smart and to look authoritative when you're giving criticism than when you're giving praise. But your job as a leader is not to look smart. Your job as a leader is to really pull the best out of people. And focusing on the good stuff is really important. So step number two is say what's good. Focus on the good stuff. Step number three is to, to offer some criticism. So radical candor is about both praise and criticism. And to start gently. You don't want to go all the way to the outer edge of challenge directly. You want to start in kind of a neutral place. And remember, there's not perfect word. There, if I had an emotional Novocaine, I would give it out freely. But such a thing doesn't exist. There's no perfect formula for saying something if you're going to give criticism in a way that it's not going to bother the other person. I mean, maybe it will, maybe it won't. The point is to say it gently and to show that you care when you say it and then to look at the response. Yeah. That's the key. Then you know what to do if you can look at the response. Yeah. You know, it, you're, you're so right. I feel one of the things that I'm trying to do hard, and you could probably sense in even this five-minute conversation is like, I want to jump in and, and start interrupting, start asking questions. And I've been learning to like, no, no, no I got I to gotta hold back. Let the person, even if they're struggling sometimes to find the right words, it, especially when you're having a one-on-one with, with somebody in a, in a feedback setting, you let them kind of talk through that. Let them find their own voice and own words. And I've found this painfully. I've made this mistake several times trying to come up with my own words for what they want to say. And then that yes. never works. <laughs> yeah, you got, you got to let them respond. It's, it's very tempting to feel like if you say something, especially if you're offering praise or criti- especially criticism, But if you say something and the person doesn't respond the way you're hoping they respond, then it's tempting to feel like you've failed. But the fact of the matter is you're getting valuable information. Don't shut yourself down to it. Try to understand the reasons why the person is responding the way they're responding. It's not your fault that they are responding the way they are, but it is your obligation to understand 
how they're responding and to reply in a way that is consistent, that's helpful, that's going to move the conversation in a good place. Absolutely. You had something, before we get into this story, the um story, right? Yes. And I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I laughed out. I mean, I even remember when I was, I think, on the flight and I was reading because it's in the introduction or the first couple of chapters of the book. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is so good. Can you share that um story a little bit? Sure. One of the best examples of radical candor comes from a time when my boss criticized me. I was working, I had just started working at Google and my boss was Sheryl Sandberg and I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO of Google about how the AdSense business was doing. I walked into the room and there is Sergey Brin in toe shoes on an elliptical trainer in one corner of the room and there's Eric Schmidt who was CEO at the time in another corner doing email and he's so intent, it's like his brain has been plugged into the machine. And like any normal person in this situation, I felt a little bit nervous. How in the world was I supposed to get these people's attention? And luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new publishers we had added, Eric almost fell off his chair. He said, what did you say? So what do you need? Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineers? So I feel like the meeting's going all right. In fact, I now believe I'm a, a bona fide genius. And, and so as I walked out of the room, I walked past Cheryl, and I'm expecting a high five or a pat on the back or something. And instead, Cheryl says to me, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And I thought, oh, wow, I have screwed something up, and I'm sure I'm about to hear about it. And Cheryl began the conversation by telling me about the things that had gone well in the meeting, not in the feedback sandwich sort of kick kiss me, kick me, kiss yeah. me, but really seeming to mean what she was saying. But of course, all I wanted to do was to know what I had done wrong. And eventually Cheryl said to me, you said I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And at this point, I breathed a huge sigh of relief because if that was all I had done wrong, who really cared? I, you know, I had a tiger by the tail. And I kind of made a brush off gesture with my hand. And I said, yeah, I know it's, it's a verbal tick. It's no big deal, really. And then Cheryl said, I know great speech coach. I bet Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? Once again, I made a brush off gesture with my hand. And I said, no, I'm busy. Didn't you hear about all these new customers? And then Cheryl stopped and she looked right at me. And she said, I can see when you do that thing with your hand that I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now she's got my full attention. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And you couldn't say it was mean of Cheryl to say I sounded stupid. But in fact, it was the kindest thing that she could have done for me at that moment. Because if she hadn't said it to me just that way, then I wouldn't have gone to the speech coach. And I wouldn't have learned that I literally said um, every third word. And this was news to me because I had raised millions of dollars for two startups, giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. Right. And it, yeah, it really got me to thinking, why had no one told me? It was almost like I'd been walking through my whole career with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth, and nobody had had the common courtesy to tell me. So I was thinking about what, it, what was it about Cheryl that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me, but also why did nobody else tell me? Yeah. And I realized in the case of Cheryl, it boiled down to two things. First and most important was that she cared about me at a personal level, not just as an employee, but as a human being. 
And so, for example, when a family member fell ill, she said, I'm going to come up with a coverage plan for you. You go get on an airplane. Your place is with your family right now. Wow. We've got your back. That's what teams do for each other. But at the same time, I always knew that she was never going to let her concern for my short-term feelings, which were real, get in the way of her willingness to tell me something mm. that I really needed to know, like I had this um problem. And so I was really grateful to her for telling me. And, th and that was really kind of the genesis of the radical candor framework. You know, all of life's hardest problems can be boiled down to a good two-by-two -two framework. So care personally on the vertical axis, challenge directly on the horizontal axis. When you do both, it's radical candor. When you yeah. challenge, but you forget to show you care, it's obnoxious aggression. When you care, but you fail to challenge, usually because you're trying to be nice, that's ruinous empathy, because really the person would be better off knowing about the problem. And when you do neither, when you neither care nor challenge, it's manipulative insincerity. So that's the, that's the book in six quick phrases. <laughs> I mean, that story, Kim, is so powerful. And I still today struggle with this, right? And, and I struggle in, in and I, I'm actually, I have this in my, like, as you see, like I have the book, we have gone through as a team, I have it as part of my notebook. I actually, I don't know if you could see, but there is this, this thing is actually oh, yeah, there. there it is. Remind me about this, this idea that am I this or that? Because I feel sometimes I cop out and yeah. I don't share what I really want to share because I feel it's not the right time. I'm going to hurt somebody. They're under a lot of pressure right now. So maybe, you know, I'll, I'll take a week later. I feel like too, it sounds so good. It sounds so right to do. And yet I fail. Have so you do I. I fail all the time. <laughs> okay. So it's not just like, we, yeah. We, we all, we all, that's, I think that's why the book has, resonated with so many people because we all fail at this. It is really, really hard to get this right. Uh, and I think the important thing is not to judge yourself too harshly when you fail. Mm. And don't put, don't use the radical candor framework like some kind of Myers-Briggs personality test because these are mistakes that we make in conversations. And on a daily basis, we're in all four of these quadrants multiple, multiple times. So if you can use the framework to sort of gently guide yourself back to where you're trying to get, to realize I'm trying to help somebody and I'm telling them this thing and I've upset them. It's time for me to show them that I care personally. Or yeah. I, I know I should tell this person this thing, but I'm afraid of upsetting them. But if I think about the long-term impact that I'll have, bad impact on this person, I can realize it's not so nice. My silence is not nice. And Audre Lorde says, your silence will not protect you. And your silence will not protect the other person either. Silence is often feels safe, but it's not that safe. Yeah, it's, it's not helpful. You're, you're absolutely right. The other part where, you know, you have worked at both Google and Apple, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's like, you know, crazy to think about. What, what, yeah. what are the, I mean, I'm sure you get this question all the time. Are they same? Are they different? They're like, very, very different. Very, very different cultures. Uh, similar in a lot of ways. But I would say, if you want to use the radical candor framework to sort of analyze it, I would say they're, yeah. both, they're both radically candid. But Apple is radically candid with a, with a twist of obnoxious aggression. <laughs> and, 
Google is radically candid with a twist of ruinous empathy. Uh, but um, they're both really great cultures. I think if Google is a sort of let a thousand flowers bloom culture, Apple is a choose one flower and cultivate the hell out of it. <laughs> I can um, totally see that. I can yeah. totally, totally see that. I mean, if you want a really great example of the difference between the two cultures, go eat lunch at each place. So at Google, lunch is free, it's organic, it's delicious, but it's a smorgasbord. And so I would always like, I was tempted by all these things and I would put all these things on my plate and I'd get and sit down and look and say, ah, this doesn't, this doesn't, this is all good and organic and delicious, but it doesn't quite go together. And then at Apple, you had to pay, which was kind of a bummer for lunch in the land of the free lunch. But it was these beautifully composed, well-planned meals. You just uh, got your plate, and it was all. And it was like, oh. That is. Uh, I did not know that you have to actually pay at Apple. You have to pay. You have to pay. No free lunch. It's subsidized, and it's, yeah. it's worth every penny that yeah. you pay. But you do have to pay. That is fantastic. All right, here, here's another. I mean, there are so many because you're so right. I, I recommend everybody to read this book because it's not like theories and parables of different things. These are actual conversations with people. So I, I love that about it because it literally feels like you're sitting and having a conversation. One of the conversations you had, I, I, I forgot who it was with, but the conversation from this person to you was, hey, look, Steve Jobs doesn't always get it right. Steve Jobs always gets it right, right? I mean, it's, it's I don't know what the yeah, paradox yeah, is. So- yeah. So this was a conversation with Andy Grove about whether or not I was working at Google and I was trying to decide whether I should leave Google and go to Apple. And Andy thought it was a good idea to go to Apple because he thought it would be really interesting to see the difference in the two cultures. So Andy says to me, fucking Steve always gets it right. And I looked at him and I sort of laughed. I mean, I thought he was kidding. And I said, nobody's always right. And he looks at me and he says, I'm not talking like a novelist. I'm talking like an engineer. I did not say he is always right. I said he always gets it right. And the reason he explained that he gets it right is that he's willing to be wrong and eager to be wrong even. And, and he insists that the people who work with him tell him when he's wrong, not always in the most gentle way. There, there, was, there was another story that somebody told me about how he was having an argument with Steve and then went back and forth a few times. And eventually he just was like, well, you're the, you know, you own the company. It's your company. And yeah. so he just, went, he just went along. He figured he had made his point and, and he agreed. And it became very clear that Steve was wrong and this guy mm-hmm. was right. And Steve charged into this guy's office and he's like, ah. And, and he said, but Steve, you, this was your decision. You wanted to do it this way. And Steve looks at him and he says, and it was your job to convince me I was wrong and you failed. <laughs> well, you can't really win. And that means, yeah. <laughs> oh man, but that is a true, I'm, I'm like really thinking about the conversations we have in the office and me and my co-founders literally had a conversation this morning about, man, we, we need to rebuild our sense of urgency. We just grew from about three people four years ago to about 200 people here in Atlanta. And, and, and all along the side, as, as the company grew, we felt like, okay, great, we're hiring right people. There are more processes. So of course you slow down as a company, but you're growing. And, and all of a sudden we're like, 
man, there's some really big problems over here. And, and yeah. where is the sense of urgency? Where is all those things? And we feel like, are we just not like driving that? Or are we to step back from what's really happening on the, like, how do we bring that sense of urgency? And, and we're str- we're struggling with like, how do we build that all together? So we're like, should we just lock everybody in the room for like, you know, 12 hours until we get the answers? Or should we literally let the people do what they're doing? Like, how do we do that? What, what's your recommendation for us? Well, I mean, I need to know a lot. It's hard for me to die. It's not very much information. <laughs> so I, I don't want to judge. But I will tell you a pattern that I have seen many, many times at companies that I have worked very closely with. And what happens is you start out small. It's a small group of people. You're working very closely together. You usually have pretty strong relationships and pretty big fights. You know, right. it's a culture of radical candor. Yeah. You love each other, but you're, at, you know, you're yelling at each other all the time because there's pressure to get to the right answer. Right. And then you succeed. The radical candor is successful and, and you start to grow. And you want to keep that sort of feeling of intense relationship. You don't want to lose that. You don't want to get like a big company where everybody's all you know, only professional, you know, you want to keep that humanity. And because people, when they don't know each other well, are more reluctant to be radically candid, there's kind of a drift to ruinous empathy. Mm. And people aren't saying, people aren't putting their hand up when they see things go wrong, or they aren't putting their hand up when somebody's late on something. And that might be, I mean, I don't want to judge from afar, but that might be where you are now. You're hitting that. And let me tell you what will happen next if you don't fix it, because it gets worse. So the problem with ruinous empathy is that it's ruinous. It doesn't work very well. Mm. So now all of a sudden in the organization, the people who are bona fide assholes, the people who are consistently obnoxiously aggressive, I said don't use these things as labels, but the people who don't worry at all about caring personally and who are, who are only focused on challenge, they start to win. The assholes mm. start to win. And so now you have a few assholes at the top and the rest of the company, usually the response to an asshole, especially an asshole with power, is manipulative insincerity. It's kind of a self-protective system. Yeah, yeah. And then that's a disaster, you know, and you see that pattern happening over and over and over again. So, so I think one of the things you can do to have more fun at work, because ruinous empathy is really not much fun. Yeah. In addition to being ruinous, it's boring. Yeah. <laughs> So you want to move, you want to keep that care, you want to keep the care high, but you want to move the organization back to radical candor. And it can be done with even, even at bigger organizations, but it does require, it requires, it, it requires effort up, down, and sideways. You can't only do it top down, you got to get the buy-in from people. Yeah. And, and there are things you can, you know, I talk a lot in the book, Things you can do to encourage it between people, processes you can put in place, lightweight, and also just norms. Like probably one of the most important norms is clean escalation, what Fred Kaufman calls Mm. clean escalation. Fred Kaufman was my coach at Google and is now, I think, the chief philosopher at LinkedIn. And he's great. He wrote wrote a couple of fantastic- Philosopher, that's that's the title. Yeah, that's a good title, huh? (laughs) Anyway, he calls it clean escalation. And the point is, if you're a manager, don't let somebody on your team come to you and complain about someone else on your team. Make them, come to, make them work it out. Ask them. Try to work it out directly. And if you can't, you can come to me and I'll help you, but you need to come to me together. So you're having a three-person three meeting. Oh, I love so, that. I think that's yeah. great. Yeah, that, yeah. that solves it's, half the problems. It does, except that it feels awkward. I mean, like a lot of problems with radical canner is 
is it feels awkward. It feels like you're the principal calling two kids into the, into the principal's office. And part of your job as a manager, as a leader, is to get over that awkwardness and yeah. do it anyway. I love that. All right. So I took like four pages of notes. I'm going to summarize with like one or two really big ideas. I'll add a lot more in the show notes. And then Kim, we'll love for you to give a challenge. The people who listen to this podcast are typically in B2B, CEO, marketing, sales leaders, all, all in that category. So, so a few things. Buy the book. Like there's just no, like I'm just going to say that over because this is, this is really, it's, it's a conversation. One of the things that you said, and I kind of highlighted it a couple of times here, is that as you go through this process, you're going to figure out, and I'm glad you shared that, that it's okay to fail, but it's more important to recognize where you're going and gently move in that direction. And I think the words that you said to me was not to judge yourself too harshly and get into that. So I feel like that's a, that just made me feel good. Like, because I was trying to like, like, you know, constantly look at it and, and you can't do that. You, you lose the context, you lose the emotions, you lose the care and probably in many ways might lose the authenticity in the process that, that you truly want everybody to aspire to. So give yourself a break and, and do your best you can learn from it and just try to do better. I love when you said like not to judge yourself too harshly. The other thing, you know, from your experience and that conversation about Steve Jobs, I feel like this is such a big idea and I, I wish, I, I want everybody to, I think I'm going to get a frame on this thing is this, this point of willingness to be wrong. Yes. I mean, so it is important. so important, right? It's one thing to say and it's other thing, how you handle that when you're actually wrong. I remember something in the book you said that when I think Larry Page and I think Matt was having this conversation where Matt was getting really upset to Larry, like you're going to throw a bunch of crap on me or something like that. And and you saw that conversation feeling like, what's going on over here? And Larry (laughs) actually was smiling or grinning because he did that. And I have that picture now in my head. So that was really, really big. And then in this whole process, like you have managed 700 plus people, you have been at Google and Facebook, uh, Google and Apple, you've worked with like Shell Sandberg, and I love, I just interviewed Daniel Payne, who has also recommended your book and, and put it out there. You said something that, that I, again, another thing that I want to highlight, which is before you jump into any conversation, ask, solicit, learn before you share. So that is another thing for every leader to know is that, just because you're a leader and you can call people in your office says you don't have to be the first person to speak and tell what you feel. It's better and at a, at a much higher ground when you ask and solicit. So I think that's a big, again, tons of other lessons from it. I'd love for you to share a challenge with everybody listening right now. Great. Okay. Here's my challenge. It's very specific. Figure out right this minute, what is the way you're going to ask for feedback. What's the question you're going to use? So I'll give you a couple of examples. The question I like to use is, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? But if you ask that question, you're going to sound like you just listened to a podcast with Kim Scott. (laughs) (laughs) It won't feel authentic, in other words. So you've got to figure out how you are going to ask the question. One of the people who I worked with a lot was Krista Quarles, who, who used to be the CEO of OpenTable. And she said, the question I like to use is, tell me why I'm smoking crack. So different way to ask the same thing, right? But there's a couple of important things. One, don't ask a yes or no question. 
Because if you say something like, do you have any feedback for me? I can already tell you what the answer is. Oh, no, everything's fine. So you need to say something like, what could I do? Or tell me why. Not, it needs to push them. So that's one important thing. But the most important thing is that it shows you really want to know the answer, that you're really open to it. So I, I would encourage you in the next two minutes to come up with your sentence and decide who you're going to ask it to and ask it in the next two days. No reason to wait. I love it. Kim, thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you. Really enjoyed being here. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.